Well, good morning again. My name is Brad Cheney. I have a cold, so you'll have to <laughs> indulge me or be patient with me. Hopefully, I won't have any bad coughing fits. Uh, if you're visiting with us, um, I'd love to get to meet you if you um, want to come up after the service and introduce yourself, or if you'd like to grab coffee sometime, uh, it'd be a pleasure to get, to get to know you. We've been going through a sermon series in the life of David. We're in week number three. Uh, going to have maybe 10 or so more sermons. As part of this sermon series, we've also been in our worship service utilizing a psalm of David. So we read a psalm of David. We sing that same psalm. The, the second song that we sing today, you may have noticed that a lot of people, it, it was new, maybe not as many voices were singing because it, it was brand new for us. Although I thought it was really lovely. Uh, rendition of Psalm 133. It's kind of hard to find a psalm of David that fits the theme of the passage today, which is uh, of friendship. And then I guess the other feature that we've tried to use is putting on the front of the bulletin uh, sacred art. (laughs) Although I just started, uh, I was aghast when I saw. So I'm the one who's responsible for the sacred art on the front of the bulletin. (laughs) And little did I realize, I, re- I, I don't get a copy, a hard copy of the bulletin until I walk in on Sunday mornings. And of all things, I cho- cho- choose this ancient piece of Eastern iconography of Jonathan and David, and it turns out to be a purse with a zipper on the top of it. I could not believe, like, where's my attention to detail? I can't believe it. That was not intentional. <laughs> It's a nice purse. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. <laughs> oh, boy. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 18. The results of a 2006 study from Duke University came out. I don't think they're terribly surprising to anyone, but they reported that between the years of 1985 and 2004, so 20 years, a 20-year period, the number of Americans who said that they had at least one close confidant, you think it increased or decreased over those 20 years? Yeah, of course, it decreased substantially. It it decreased 30%, which is a statistically significant number when you're speaking of only two decades. 30% lower 20 years later, which says a lot about uh, social fabric and social cohesion um, in our culture. In that same study, one out of every four people reported that they, they literally had no one, not a single person in their life whom they could confide in. Uh, for those of us who have high school seniors, we are uh, neck deep in the college application <laughs> series season, rather, and, uh, uh, or we're going to soon to be neck deep in the process this week I was doing some research for a couple of colleges that my, uh, my senior daughter is looking at, the Texas Tech University and the University of Arizona, my alma mater. So happy that she's looking at that. Uh, go to U of A, Cora, bear down. <laughs> I was on Reddit. For those of you who aren't familiar, Reddit is um, a message board, a very popular type of message board. And I, I just want to read to you. These, it turned out these were the top post, the first post that you read on Reddit for Texas Tech and for the University of Arizona. Over the past few weeks, 
I've been at tech, I found it extremely difficult to actually connect with people. I've done my best to go to events during Welcome Week. I've gone out on Thursday nights. I've attended football games, but I just can't seem to meet anyone. Maybe I'm just too socially awkward and shy, or maybe I'm just insufferable, but everyone I end up, I, uh, everyone I meet ends up never really wanting to interact with me past that point. Then at the University of Arizona, hi, so I'm a freshman who's been here for a month. I, I do love the school, but I've had a really hard time making friends. I was pledging a frat, and I thought those guys would be my friends, but I had to drop out due to bad hazing. I've been hanging out mostly with my roommate and a couple of guys from back home, and I feel lonely a lot. I've tried to talk to people in my dorm, but a lot are quiet. What are other things that I could do? And sure, that part of that is just being a freshman, going to a new place. But I wonder if I, I wonder if today's freshmen have actually really considered this. So in pre-modern thought, the way ancient man understood his humanity, the way to be a fully human individual was to get control of your base passions, the base passions within yourself, in order that you might flourish to uh, produce new virtues. That was pre-modern man. Modern man, you know, the way to be a fully human person today is, it's essentially, it's to be an unencumbered self. The best case scenario for the American heart today is the unencumbered self. Joe American, if he has it his way, he'd like it so that no institution is restricting his freedom. There are no restrictions on that he can get, he can just express me, you know, I want to be in, in relationships where I get to express me and I get to pursue what I'm all about and I get to do what I want. That is, isn't that, that's where we're at culturally. But do you see the incompatibility between I want deep friendships and I want to live an unencumbered life? Like Those two are, are, are not very compatible because if true friendship intensely encumbers us. And likewise, that same college freshman, if the statistics are to be believed, who um, wants friendships is probably also part of hookup culture where you want sex, but you don't want to be bound by a relationship. You want, you want their body, but you don't want to be encumbered by all the responsibilities that come. And you see how just those two, those, those two don't jive. And so it's not surprising that it's extremely hard to make good friendships in our society today. Uh, and you don't have to be a college freshman to know that. You know that, that, that you move to a new, new city, and that's the way it is. It's very hard. I don't suggest, I'm not going to suggest that I'm going to fix all the problems in today's sermon, but, uh, but what I do want to try and impress upon you is the need for what I'll, I'll call spiritual friendship, which I think is at least partly uh, articulate in the passage. So let's read for Samuel 18, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. 
Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever Saul sent David to do, David did, it, did so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. When the men, came, when the men were turning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs with tambourines and lutes. And, and as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. A little bit of hero worship. And Saul was very angry. This, this refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. We skip ahead to chapter 20. Uh, in, the, in the intervening passages, Saul attempts to kill David multiple times. Jonathan attempts to intercede on David's behalf. I mean, Saul obviously is very threatened by David. Here, here David's stock just keeps going up, up, up. He's a rising star. Uh, and his, his own uh, son, Saul's son, is now, has this close relationship with David. Uh, Saul's very, very threatened by this. And we read in verse 11 that David has not shown up to some festival, a new moon festival he was supposed to attend and King Saul is, uh, was intending to apprehend him there. Jonathan thinks at this point that, that Saul has had a change of heart. And, and everything's going to be good between David and Saul. And uh, David says, no, no. Come, Jonathan said, let us go into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to, to David, by the Lord, the God of Israel, I will surely sound out my father by this time. The, uh, by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed toward you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father is inclined to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before I turn this into a Christian friendship sermon, which I will, and it is an important topic and it's a topic that needs to be spoken about and a topic that I love to speak about, I would like to pay attention at how David and Jonathan's covenant relationship does not fit so tidily into our Christian model of friendships. You know, oftentimes we'll approach a text of the Bible and we're asking the question, how does this passage relate to me right now? Which is a perfectly good question to ask. But in our zeal to answer that question uh, and make the one-to-one -one, you know, transfer correlation, we will oftentimes fail to appreciate the discontinuities between what's happening then and our situation today. Uh, and so I, I want us to at least note those before we move on to the continuities. So this one. Usually, 
Jonathan and David, they're treated as BFFs, right? This is the BFF passage of the Bible, you know, best buddies, best friends, best friends for life. But if you look closely, you see the covenant between David and Jonathan has a distinctly political quality to it. And yes, it is characterized by love, but these are not ordinary citizens that we're talking about. This is Jonathan, the son of Saul, the crown prince of Israel, the natural successor to the Israelite monarchy. And what does he do in verse 4? When Jonathan takes off his robes, those are princely robes that he's wearing. When he takes off those robes and hands those robes to David, well, I mean, what do you think that is symbolizing? I mean, in essence, he is abdicating his crown rights and transferring them over to David. And likewise, when he takes off his sword, did you see that? And he hands his sword to David, you know, hands him the hilt of a sword. What is that always in, in human history signified? That's a pledge of fealty. That's, that's me kneeling before you and saying, I will serve you. Another aspect of this, David and Jonathan are normally depicted in our artwork, like on the front of the bulletin, as being about the same in age. But if we were to go through and read the several chapters that comprise the David and Jonathan story from beginning to end, it would become clear that they are not the same in age. That Jonathan is, in fact, in his late 40s or early 50s, and David is right about the age of 20. So the picture that you and I, maybe we got this when we you know, grew up in the church, perhaps, and read the story many times, of a peer-to-peer relationship is an erroneous picture, because there's, there's not a peer-to-peer relationship, not in that respect. It's much more like an adoption, where the crown prince, at his own initiative, chooses a younger man to take his place. Now, later in chapter 20, you notice that the balance of power in the relationship has actually shifted. At that point, Jonathan knows that David is eventually going to become the king of Israel. And the, the prospect of that fills him with what emotion? With fear. He's afraid. Because what happens when anybody you know, ascends to the throne and, and takes power of, of you know, a, a newly elected king? What's the very first agenda item of a newly elected king? It's to do what? Kill everybody who is associated with the family of the previous king. So Jonathan is afraid here. And so he, he goes back to the covenant and asks David to reaffirm the terms of the covenant and make sure that you, you don't wipe out my family once you, you're finally the king. There's actually an interesting example of this in all places uh, the Iliad, the, the great Greek epic poem about the Trojan War. In the Iliad, Glaucus meets a Diomedes, the king of Argos, on the battlefield. Glaucus is, uh, uh, Glaucus is, is fighting for the Trojans, Diomedes for the, the Greeks. And when Diomedes challenges him on the, the battlefield, Glaucus brags that he is the grandson of great so-and-so. I don't want to bog you down with all, all the names. I am the grandson of great so-and-so, and I am ready to fight anyone And Diomedes immediately remembers that his grandfather had a covenant, a treaty with the great so-and-so, and and they had sworn friendship to one another. So I don't know if you remember this from the Iliad, but at that point they agree, we can't fight each other anymore. There's a treaty of truce between us, 
And even though the battle continues, they intentionally avoid each other on the battlefield because there was this political, you know, alliance that we won't harm each other. And, you know, there's kind of a sense that that's going on here. Both of them are pledging that we, we won't wipe the other one out. Now, all of this is not to deny the fact that there was a deep love between David and Jonathan. But, I, but the wrong approach to this passage is, as I've sometimes heard Christians suggest, like, that we should, we should make a covenant vow to another friend, you know, for the rest of our lives that, that binds us to one another. Now, I'm not saying you can't do that, but um, there's, there's a different like, political dimension going on with this covenant. Now, I guess, who is the person that we make a covenant vow of friendship for the rest of our lives to? Yeah, to our spouses. That is what should and is happening. A lifelong, life and death, tenacious blood bond that's a covenant between a husband and a wife. Um, and sadly, many of those covenants, they're not spiritual friendships. You know, there are a lot of marriage covenants that are not spiritual friendships. Uh, finally, the only other thing I want to note before uh, moving on, no, this is not a homoerotic relationship. As if you know any of the modern commentaries, everybody wants to make David and Jonathan a gay love story. And that is simply not what's going on. That, you know, honestly, that is just, that's, that is the heritage of Sigmund Freud that we have in our, in our culture, where every relationship between human beings of affection has to have some sexual components. It drives me nuts to watch the BBC and watch some great period piece from Victorian England, and yet it's always about, you know, the gay love story that happened 400 years ago. That's just Freudian. That's not, that's not what's going on. It, it is a, a deep covenantal brotherly love, and it's a shame that our culture doesn't know more about that. Agreed? Yes. So here's the definition that I've used before of a spiritual friendship. If you're taking notes and you'd like to write it down, a spiritual friendship is a deep oneness that develops as two people journey together toward the same destination, helping one another through the challenges and dangers along the way. And what makes that friendship distinctly Christian is that the two are together with Christ is their bond. I love how that's put. Two together with Christ as your bond. Um, if you want me to repeat it, deep oneness that develops as two people journey together towards the same destination, helping one another through the dangers and challenges along the way. The two are together with Christ as their bond. And when I think about what a future, healthier, All Saints Presbyterian Church looks like, by God's grace, over the next 10 years, Surely, surely it is a place where real spiritual friendships are, are, are formed and created. And as I even wrote down these, what I'll get, share with you next, five aspects of spiritual friendship, um, I was convicted as I, as I wrote these this week because I, I don't know that any of my friendships really are, are, are truly in this full orb sense like spiritual friendships um, as, as I think I as I wish them to be, and I think as, as you wish them to be. Well, let's see if that's the case as I describe them to you. Five aspects of what any true spiritual friendship must have. And I'm trying to take these also from the David and Jonathan story. Number one, they must share a common passion. 
And I draw this from verse 1, that after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. Uh, it, when you're reading the story, that the, verse 1 comes rather abruptly. We're, we just exited the David and Goliath uh, narrative, and all of a sudden, we have David and Jonathan, and boom, they're one in spirit. And you're like, well, how did that happen so quickly, guys? Was this a, a friendship at first sight? Do you believe in friendship at first sight? Uh, actually, I think I probably do. Uh, because, you know, my story is I fell in love with my wife at first sight. It was, it actually was one of those things. Uh, um, and, and you may even have a person like this where you just like instantaneously clicked with that person. It was almost a friendship at first sight. What made David and Jonathan instantaneously click? Well, if you go back to chapter 14 of 1 Samuel, it introduces David as a character by telling the story of a great military victory that David, that, did I say David? It introduces the story of Jonathan as a character by telling a, a great a military victory that Jonathan wins. He fights an entire Philistine garrison by himself with only his armor bearer there along with him. And as they're climbing up the, scaling the wall up to the Philistine garrison, the armor bearer looks at Jonathan and says, um, I don't like our odds here. <laughs> it seems like we're outnumbered by a lot. And Jonathan has these wonderful words. He says, it's the Lord's battle. And the Lord can win it with many soldiers or he can win it with few. It's the Lord's battle. Fast forward to chapter 17. David marches out to meet Goliath face to face. And what does he say? He says, I'm going to chop your head off and feed your flesh to the birds of the air and the, you know, the ground squirrels or whatever. So that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's. And you just wonder if, I mean, Jonathan was there. Jonathan, if he was like, he thinks like me. <laughs> what? You too? Me too. I think that exact same way. The battle does belong to the Lord. You know, and that's what C.S. Lewis in his great tract on uh, friendship says. He says, all friendship begins when two people all of a sudden um, discovered that they share together something which until that moment, each thought was their own. It, friendship begins with, ah, you too. <laughs> uh, similar passions. And in spiritual friendship, of course, the passion that we share, it, it can be a love for golf, and it, maybe it's love for quilting and taekwondo, but it's principally a shared passion for the Lord, for Christ. Number two, in addition to a common passion, uh, all friendships are built on loyalty. And that is very clear in the story. Uh, the, the quote on the front of the bulletin somewhat alludes to this, that if Jonathan was not in David's life, David would not have survived. Jonathan is constantly, over the course of the chapters, running interference on, on behalf of David, uh, it, we might put it this way, Jonathan has David's front and he has David's back. You know, he has his, he has his back. He's constantly tipping him off to when Saul is, is going to come and, and, and try to kill him. And he's got his front. He's constantly talking to his father saying, 
no, David's a good guy. He's, David's not trying to, to overthrow you or usurp the, the throne. He's always speaking positively about David to his father. Their relationship recalls the great friend proverbs that are scattered throughout, throughout the proverbs, like Proverbs 18, 24. There is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Or Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. That's a really lovely, a lovely proverb. If you just think about it and hear it again. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. It's the exact opposite of a user relationship. And if you haven't noticed, because... Because of our place in capitalism, because of our moment in time, nearly every one of our relationships are user relationships. They're, they're commodified economic relationships. Like Fred Myers knows that if they don't provide me a service at a cost that I find mutually acceptable, I won't, I won't go to them. I'll go somewhere else. Um, like all of our, almost all of our relationships, sadly, and maybe I'm overstating it, but many of our relationships have this little cost-benefit calculator where we're always punching in. Am I getting more out of this than I put in? Am I getting as much out of this as I put in? Um, there's, an, there's that com- commercialization of a commodification of almost all human relationships today. And that, of course, is not a friendship. <laughs> Because a friend is there no matter what. A friend is there when the calculator is massively in the negative. A friend is there to stand underneath the umbrella with you when the hard rain falls. A friend is there whatever the circumstances. I am in this thing with you. Um, You know what the difference is between a friend and a companion the difference is that when the hard rain falls and hell comes and high water <laughs> comes, a companion says, let me know if you need anything. <laughs> and a friend, a friend is there. You don't even have to ask them to be there. They're just there. You may not even expect them to be there, but they, they are, are there. Um, and incidentally, that's one of the reasons why you can't have, it's impossible to have too many friends because I don't want 10 people showing up at my house at midnight. I can't take 10 people at midnight, but I can sure tell you that I want at least one showing up at midnight. Yeah, a friend sticks closer than a brother. Mm. Common passion that's built on loyalty. The number three, uh, that is full of transparency. And I've got a few sub points to, to this, but let me read to you the very end of chapter 20, the last verses of chapter 20 and verse 41. Um, it's become clear that Saul is still intending to, to kill David. And there's this elaborate ruse taking place where Saul and uh, David, or Jonathan and David are trying to communicate out in the archery fields while David is hiding and after the boy had gone to fetch an, arch, an arrow, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. And then they kissed each other and they wept together. But David wept 
the most. These are manly men, you know. These are men who are accustomed to killing things, other people, with their bare hands. And yet here it is that they are, are sharing their emotions with one another. They're, they're weeping openly with one another. Maybe, you know, maybe back in a day when men were re- actually warriors compared to, I mean, we call a football player a warrior today. That's not a warrior. A warrior is when you have, you know, blood and gore, you know, covering you. Um, isn't it interesting that in a warrior day, they would openly weep with each other? And, and that they would, you know, kiss each other on the cheek, as was the Middle, uh, Middle Eastern custom. You know, friends let other friends, they're transparent with their, with their feelings. Uh, friends let other friends see who they really are. I think it's very important that you don't, you don't need to dress up for a friend. With your friends, you don't wear makeup. You don't dress up. You don't clean up. You don't put on a facade. If your friend drops by your house and you're out in the front yard and you're sweaty and your hair is going each and every which way and you're dirty, it, it doesn't matter because the surface doesn't matter to a friend. We don't have to try and appear to be something we are not with our friends. A very good indicator, isn't it, that maybe this isn't a friendship. It's something less than a friendship is when I'm really concerned about how you, you know, how I appear to you. And I don't feel very safe with you. So I have to, I have to, yeah, you know, put on something that I am not. Friends are open with each other about their flaws. Ray Cortez, uh, the pastor in southern Florida, whom I quote regularly, said, uh, this is a good way of putting it, I've got buddies in my life who I invite them to hunt on my property. Even though I put up no hunting signs everywhere, they know they're allowed to walk right through those signs and hunt on my property. And what he meant by that is they're allowed to, they're allowed to hunt in my life. <laughs> they're allowed to come into my life. And if they see an area that needs correcting, they're allowed to do that. They have, like, they're allowed to speak to me and, and to call me on the carpet about anything. They're allowed to hunt on my property, <laughs> even though there are no hunting signs for everyone else. Great way of saying it. And then friends, the last sub-point on transparency, friends are open with their decisions. They're open with their decisions. Has it ever happened to you before somebody you thought was a really close friend ends up making a life-altering decision, completely life-altering decision, and they never even speak a word to you about it before the decision is made? And you might object and say, well, Brad, don't I have the freedom to make, my, I'm an adult, aren't I? I get, don't I have the freedom to make my own decisions? And of course you, you do, but if you're not willing before you make your decision to be open with your friends about your motives and about your values, if you're not willing to receive your friend's counsel, if you're not willing to accept their advice, but then again, is this truly a friendship? There's a real lack of transparency. Is true friendships are built on transparency. Number four, spiritual friendships have a specific intentional purpose. Uh, we, could, we could use a number of different descriptors for that. We could say 
grow in Christ, Christ-likeness, spiritual maturity, uh, sanctification, to use a big theological word. Another way we could put it, though, is how it's put in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, where the author of Hebrews, you may have even memorized this verse, it simply says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. You know, if you've ever been in to see a counselor, you quickly discovered that a counselor will take notes on what you, what you tell them. You sit there in a session, and they ask you lots of questions, and then as you answer those questions, they're taking notes. They're not just listening and then shooting off with their mouths. They're pondering, and they're considering. They're considering questions like, how can I help my client become less anxious? How can I help my client be less angry? How can I help this person forgive? How can they be happier, more joyful, more wise? You know, that's what a counselor is supposed to do. Well, in a spiritual friendship, similar idea. You have a person or a set of people around you who are actively considering, how can I spur this guy or this gal on toward love and good deeds? Like, isn't that a great way even to put it? Like, and how many of us have a person in our life that like, takes that level of intentionality and, with us into account and says, how can I spur you on toward love and good deeds and grow in Christ-likeness? How can I help you grow into a better man or woman? Um, we, would, we would be better people, wouldn't we? So much fuller people if uh, such a thing was taking place. As one author puts it, Christ works on us in all sorts of ways, but he really, really works on us when he works on us through each other. Yeah, let us consider how to uh, spur one another. What is a spur? A sharpened piece of metal (laughs) that we thrust into the side of an animal because the animal does not want to go the way that the animal needs to go. (laughs) Isn't that an apt metaphor? Isn't that us? We, We do not want to go the way that the Bible says we should go. The Bible says we should be forgiving. Our natural inclination, hold a grudge. The Bible says we should be, we should not be spending all our money on ourselves in self indulgent ways. Uh, we're supposed to be generous in our proportions of giving. I don't like to do that. <laughs> in other words, spiritual friendship has an, an intentionally built-in discomfort into the relationship for our spiritual good. Yeah, so returning to our definition, I'm almost done. The deep oneness that develops as two people journey together towards the same destination. Uh, and that destination... What is that destination? It is the eternal city. The good news, brothers and sisters, I know that what I just described is missing from most of our lives. The vast majority of us in this room do not have a full-orbed spiritual friend. But the good news is that the world we await, that awaits us at Christ's return, is a world full of these. Like that this is what we will spend all of eternity in, in relationships that combine all of these factors, the affection and service and depth and trust and, and delight. As one author writes, in the new heaven and the new earth, the kind of friendship that we struggle to find and establish with just a few people in this life will be the kind of friendship that covers 
the entirety of the earth. Um, it will be poured out over all. Deep friendship is how we will spend eternity in the city of God. Then fifthly and finally, what have I said? Uh, common passion, loyalty, full transparency, spiritual intentionality, costly sacrifice. You know, true friendship is, is always going to be marked by costly sacrifice. What did it cost Jonathan to have this relationship with David? It cost him, it cost him the kingdom. It's a pretty big cost. Uh, and in this, Jonathan is a picture of Christ. Not that Jesus somehow like lost the kingdom, but we already read in Philippians chapter 2 that he did not consider equality with God to be like held on to. Whatever that means, he didn't, he didn't hold on to that thing, but it says he emptied himself. And so Jonathan, in this passage, he gives up his princely robes. Well, on the cross, Jesus is disrobed, is he not? Uh, Jonathan gives up his sword. On the cross, Jesus relinquishes his sword against his enemies. Uh, he, he really does. He, he empties himself just like Jonathan. And just as David was saved through the sacrificial friendship uh, bound by, by this covenant, um, Remember the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, on the very night when he institutes the new covenant in his blood. He says these words to the twelve. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you, but I have called you friends. And greater love has no man than this that he lay down his life for his friends. Yes, our Jonathan is Jesus. <laughs> and every Sunday when we celebrate the supper, uh, he, he is saying to you, you are my friends. And he is the friend who sticks closer than a, than a brother. C.S. Lewis, I'll conclude, writing his book, The Four Loves, uh, explores the nature of love from a Christian philosophical perspective. At the end of his chapter, his priceless chapter on friendship, he writes these insightful words. He says, quote, We think we have chosen our friends, but in reality, a few years difference in the dates of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, the accident of a topic being raised or not raised at, at our first meeting, any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. And Christ, who has said to disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, ye have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. <laughs> and whoever it is, whoever is that best friend, uh, you look at them, look at them today, look at them this week, hear their voice on the phone, and realize Christ says, I chose you for him, or you for her. I chose you for them, and vice versa. And most meaningful of all, God has chosen his son to be the friend of sinners, <laughs> the friend of sinners like us.
and bound himself to us in a covenant friendship. Amen.